Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we continue our look at how art world professionals are doing what they do in the middle of a pandemic with Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator and department head of Latin American art, Ilona Katsu. She and I will talk about how she tries to do her job, including investigation, research, and acquisition at a time when the pandemic is challenging researchers to find new ways to work, all without traveling to sites or without having the usual institutional resources, such as libraries. On previous episodes, we've looked at how artists, critics, museum directors, and contemporary curators have worked through the pandemic. Those shows have included artists Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, Ursula von Reidingsvard, Palampaji Sapoya, and Kate Shepard, critics Christopher Knight and Antoine Sargent, museum directors Sabina Ekman and Rebecca Rabineau, and most recently Prospect 5 annual co-curator Naima J. Keith. On the second segment, I'll talk with artist Lava Thomas about her recent experience with the San Francisco Arts Commission and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. But first, Ilona Katsu, after the break. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, featuring the work of more than 60 Black artists who defined Black identity, creativity, activism, and social responsibility over two decades. Soul of a Nation explores what it meant to be a Black artist in America during two revolutionary decades, from the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement to the early 1980s and the emergence of identity politics. See works by pivotal artists like Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Roy De Carava, David Hammonds, Lorraine O'Grady, and Faith Ringgold. Accompanying the exhibition is a dynamic lineup of virtual programming. Artist talks, discussions, films, and more. Now on view through August 30th. Visit mfah.org slash soul. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation, as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. And we're back. Ilona Katsu, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me yet again. I really love it. Before we get to the good stuff, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing as best as I can, probably as everybody else is trying to, to manage the situation. But you know, it's, it's challenging times. So you, you work not just in archives and libraries, but you, because of your field, spend typically spend a lot of time traveling and looking and uncovering and finding. So what is the largest way in which the pandemic has either impacted your work or your ability to do your work? Well, Tyler, it's been, it's pretty, pretty stark, the change from last December to, to March when everything came to sort of a dramatic halt. We are, I mean, I started working on another project uh, that has to do with a 17th and 18th century New World polychrome sculpture. So I'm really excited. It's an idea that we've been thinking about for quite a long time. And I joined forces with my wonderful colleague from the Met, Rhonda Castle, a wonderful specialist of this material who is Spanish and works, teaches and works in Mexico City at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México. So we had this preliminary trip back in December to just talk about the project and uh, really flesh out the, the outline and the themes. And we did a wonderful research trip to 
see things in Mexico City and in Puebla. Very gone hold to keep going. We had this major trip planned for, I think it was March 15th. And it was literally three or four days before everything came to this very dramatic stop. And we just stopped. I mean, it just stopped. The entire travel was canceled. And we are still waiting to see how we can regroup and start looking at things. So it's been, it's been pretty dramatic in that sense. As curators, we're all so used to seeing and converging with cult with uh, with colleagues in different locations. It's a very international enterprise, and now we've been very much forced to to go inwards. So, once you and colleagues get started on a project like that, normally you would both look at things and 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 do research in in books and in manuscript archives. Have you been able to do any of that kind of work since all this started? It's been very piecemeal. We have amassed a little bit of material over the years. So we're doing readings right now. We had to completely change our priorities and focus from traveling and seeing and just kind of getting the lay of the land of all these beautiful things across Spain mostly and Mexico to um, focusing on rent, on reading secondary material, bibliography, and that, even that is really challenging to get in this time um, with most loan libraries and, and just even LACMA's library being closed. So it's we've really learned how to mine the uh, the web, sort of the internet, to see what we can find there, and which is always partial and incomplete. And it's not the same thrill as going into a library and looking at archival materials and touching books and just going through the stacks and finding things in a surprising way. So it's the thrill of discovery and research has shifted. And it's also, I mean, it's given me a lot of pause to think how we are going to be forced to to conduct research in a very different way. I mean, things were already moving in a very digital direction. But to me, the thrill of touching a manuscript, of smelling it, of just kind of getting a sense of the person, the scribes, it's irreplaceable. It's not something you can really approximate through through the internet or through, by seeing things digitally. There was a document that was pivotal in my first book that because I held it, 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 it was a document in which the writer had just discovered the death of, of his best friend. And because I was holding it in my hands, I could see that liquid had fallen onto the letter and been brushed away. And I could understand it, you know, 70% as maybe a tear, which you don't see this. Well, you can't see that on the surface of a paper, a piece of paper that was digitized two years ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's an energy, if you will, in this documents that is not translatable. It's just something that you, you feel. I think that's something that really got me into the art history field too. It's a way of really kind of approaching getting close to people and feelings and thoughts of times past. And it's uh, through the remnants of material culture. And, uh, you know, I'm conscious of how I can't walk down a, walk through a stack at a library, perusing all of the books on a, on a shelf around a topic and discover something, not accidentally, but organically, that I didn't exactly know I was looking for, but knew I was looking for-ish. That, that we can't do. And, and there's, a, there's a PhD student at, at USC at the research library I most often use in Los Angeles who quite often sits across from me. And I know that he is writing his dissertation on religion in 19th century California, Protestantism in, in 19th century California. And I hadn't realized how accustomed I'd gotten to just kind of asking him questions at lunch or over, you know, when we were getting cups of coffee. And then now I'm sitting here having to do that, <laughs> figure out those answers myself. <laughs> so yeah, there, the, 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 there is that difference. I don't mean to turn back the clock, but I want to frame this next question in the context of, of your last show, which was painted in Mexico, 1700 to 90. Uh, you were on, on the podcast to talk about it. It traveled to the Met where Rhonda Castle installed it. It was the result of a heck of a lot of investigation, the discovery of works and the kind of team effort you're describing now. So over half, at least according to the LA Times, over half of the works in that show needed extensive conservation before they could be fully seen, before they could travel, before they could go on view. 
Many of the works had never been exhibited or even published, so you would have had to travel to see them. And many had never been seen outside of churches. You had to go there. What are some of those kinds of things you can't do now, and how do they affect the calendar on which you would normally be working to prepare a show? Yeah, I mean, that was a very specific project with very specific requirements. We ended up restoring over 50% of the works in the exhibition. Uh, Which takes time, I should point out, in case that's not obvious. Yeah, I take it took about a year to just line up that whole restoration process. And we engaged multiple restorers in three continents. It was a very belabored and protected process. The thing that gives me hope is for this current project is that we are at the very beginning and normally this kind of in-depth and in-depth project that requires a lot of original research and looking at things that haven't been shown or published before for the most, you take about four or five years really to prepare a show of this nature. So we are at the beginning and I'm hoping that the pandemic will be over within a year at the most. I mean, that's kind of on the green side of things. Hopefully next spring or next summer, things will come back to some kind of normalcy where we can begin traveling again. Although I suspect that things will be very different and people will prioritize their travels and their movement in a very different way, less squander and more calculated. So we do, we still have to travel to all these locations, visit the churches and the monasteries and the museums to assess things, uh, not only historically and aesthetically, but also to assess very carefully the state of conservation of these objects. The team for this project is a little bit different than the one we had for painting in Mexico in that we have one of the team members is a trained conservator and art historian. So he comes with these two really great baggages of knowledge, and that's going to really help us move the conservation process along in a quicker way, I feel. I mean, I hope. So that's, um, I, I'm really looking forward to doing that. It's going to take a while. And so we're, we're sitting still until we can get on the air again. We were really just days away from meeting in uh, the Canary Islands in March when this all happened. I am not expert in your field, so please correct me if I'm wrong here. But I'm curious about how the pandemic and it's in the likelihood that it continues for a while will have on publishing in your field. So, for example, if I need a photograph of a Sanford Gifford painting for a book, I know full well the Met or Toledo or whomever will have that and I can still get it. Again, very junior, barely extant understanding is that quite often or more often in your field than in, in than for Americanists, that you have to commission photography, that you are quite often publishing works that have never been photographed slash published before. And how is the pandemic going to affect that? Yeah, because the field has grown, the field of vice regal or Spanish colonial art has grown quite significantly in the last decade. There are more and more universities teaching in this area. There are more museums and public collections trying to assemble holdings in the field. The, there, there is some material that is readily available, and libraries, of course, they, those that have photograph materials are making them available whenever they can. But as you say, Tyler, there's a, there's a great number of works that haven't been photographed, especially those that are ensconced in churches and other locations that are not part of the normal kind of art historical or touristy path. Because, again, because we're at this early stage of, or it feels like an eternity, but we're at this early stage of the pandemic, we, we personally haven't had to, to face that so much. I am working on a book of a LACMAS collection of Spanish colonial art where we've had to commission quite a bit of recent photography. So that was going incredibly well right up to March, and now we're starting to... <laughs> to to get into some major hiccups where it's like, okay, well, that's an image that we really wanted, but we have a publication deadline and we are likely not going to have it. We were just making do with what we can. I, I can't remember whom I was talking to the other day that this pause in a way, I mean, the, the, I mean, I think we all know, and I don't think, you know, I or my colleagues are exceptional in any way in terms of what we're facing. I think we're all going through very similar things and each just coping in their own 
in their own personal way. But I, I think that we are going to have to rethink how we, we do things in the future. And also the kind of interesting thing of this pause for me is that it is a pause and it's a pause physically, socially, mentally, spiritually. There's a kind of silence, even as we're in the midst of all this turmoil and social upheaval. But there's also sort of a time of silence and it's uh, it's a moment where, I don't know, sometimes we are, we feel like we're cornered and that there are no ways out just because we're used to doing things in a certain way. But the beauty of the challenge too is to try to find other ways to to do things that bring you joy and satisfaction and allow you to continue with your intellectual and spiritual and social pursuits. So there's an element of creativity by being kind of pushed to a corner too, which uh, I also find quite intriguing and fascinating to a certain point. You are uh, a curator at a major museum who is well known for acquiring a lot, for, for being an active acquisitor, not, not just in terms of receiving gifts, but particularly in terms of making purchases. Can you do anything in that direction now? <laughs> I'm I mean, that never stops. <laughs> I try to not have it stop. Otherwise, I think that would be the kind of a challenge that I would not enjoy. It, but it has changed. And uh, I'll give you the most recent example. We at the museum, we have been working for nearly two and a half years in acquiring this major penetrable by the Venezuelan artist Jesus Rafael Soto, which uh, is a piece that it's an interactive, tactile, sensorial work. It's uh, very much like the yellow penetrable that we had installed at LACMA for a number of years on loan from the uh, Patricia Phelps' Cisneros collection. And when we had to return that work to the owners, there was really there was really an outcry among our visitors who enjoyed that piece so much, especially kids and and it was just one of those pieces that allowed for people to come together and experience the work of art tactilely and sensorially as opposed to just looking at it from a distance. So we made it a mission to try to find another work by the artist. And I had been working very closely with the Sicardi Gallery in Houston, who have been absolutely wonderful, and the Atelier Soto in Paris. And we identified a piece, we commissioned it, the, the whole thing was in the works. We, the, the big part was actually trying to put the funding together, which we, we did and took us two and a half years. And of course, there was enormous excitement to install the piece on LACMA's campus around April. I think we have targeted April as a date to, to bring the piece to the museum. And then we got hit with the pandemic. So not only was the piece unable to arrive to LACMA on time, but there's no way we can install a piece like that during this time where you actually have people wading through, through the work of art and uh, with all the the risks and fears. So that was that was a challenging moment to realize that this piece that's supposed to be so much about bringing people together and hope, exemplifying the artist's notion of everything belongs to the same dimension. I mean, we're all united. We're all part of the same thing. That's a really inherent notion of this piece that you can't actually bring it to the public right now. So that was that was a little bit frustrating, I think, for me and some of my, my colleagues in the museum. But I still see it as a wonderful sign of hope. And I know that when we get a chance to install the piece, it's going to be a symbol of times changed, uh, getting back to, to, to be able to come together physically. LACMA did announce that acquisition in an email, probably, like, like you say, maybe in April or in early May which I particularly remember because it was so unexpected. And, you know, there was an optimism to it because, you know, that's a piece you have to walk through to see slash experience and touch and do all of the tactile, proximate things that we've all been told we can't do right now. We'll have an, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Won't, won't be an image of LACMA, of course, but, <laughs> but I, I, I have images of it. 
<laughs> and of course, who knows when we'll when we'll get to, when it'll get to be installed, or even will it be able to be installed outdoors? I think so. I mean, the hope is that we will install it either outdoors or indoors. It's uh, something we'll have to assess now that uh, our exhibition plans have changed. Everything with the with the pandemic, everything has, as you 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 know, a sort of domino effect. So things that were fairly stable by March have have shifted, and we I think you know we all just have to remain as flexible and as creative as possible and we'll we'll get through these times the the thing with the soto piece too as you mentioned we couldn't photograph it so when we did <laughs> when we worked on this documentary video about soto and his philosophy behind these pieces the most blatant omission was that we didn't have photographs of the work at LACMA. So we had to borrow photographs from the installation in Tokyo and, and uh, other locations. And that was not ideal, but we, it's one of the ways in which you have to be nimble and creative and just piece things together. My sense of your field from afar, from outside it, is that it, it is unusually collaborative, perhaps by necessity, given that your field, you know, is active on three or four continents, whereas, you know, those of us who work on the United States are barely on one. (laughs) How has the pandemic changed the collaborative nature of the field? Has it just been that it migrates to Zoom calls like other things, or has it impacted how the field advances and works in other ways? Of course, I think, but I think this probably pertains to all of us. Uh, we've moved on to to convening meetings through Zoom or Google Hangouts, phone calls. A big thing in Mexico is WhatsApp, so a lot of phone calls through WhatsApp. That's kind of been like a lifesaver, and uh, that's that's how we're we're doing it. But I think I think that as much as we're communicating and we're trying to sort of stay on track to the best of our abilities. We also know that this will end, and I think it's really important to just keep that in mind. This this will end, and things will not go back to being the same, but we will claim a new normalcy, and uh, I'm, I'm convinced of that. We will find ways to continue working together in a slightly different ways, but I cannot envision a future without, without human interaction, without the day-to-day conversations with colleagues, with uh, friends, with family. That's it's a pause, but it's a pause that will end. One of the things about your field that's been so interesting and exciting in the last decade is that it has been expanding at a breakneck pace, both within art museums and their acquisitions and their staffing, but also, as you mentioned earlier, within academia too. And my my sense is, is has been that part of that has been attracting students, PhD students to the field, and funders who, whose expanding interest in the field have made possible everything from more students to more acquisitions to more exhibitions. Are you concerned that a you know six month, twelve month, eighteen month, however long this thing lasts, pause in in research and recruitment will cause some momentum to be lost? That's an excellent question. I mean, I think the field is well entrenched by now, and students who are conducting dissertations will continue to conduct their dissertations. I I kind of know of a couple of them intimately, and that they're conducting research in Mexico, and they had every hope to go back this year and finish their research in uh, Zacatecas and other places throughout Mexico, for example, in Latin America, and they can't. It might be that they finish the dissertations with what they have, and when things open up, they go back and they they fill in the gaps for hopefully what is the book. So I really think that I think that people are going to figure out ways around around how they work for a little while. And because this is happening to all of us concurrently, people are understanding of the circumstances, and there's a little bit of uh, flexibility in that sense. Acquisitions, for example, you had asked about acquisitions, that that has uh, has changed as well. I mean, I'm used to going to see artworks routinely in art fairs. I travel to Spain and Europe quite often to, to look at objects in my field, which I haven't been able to do. So I'm trying to to 
keep in touch with vendors over Zoom, over phone calls, and uh, we've been seeing things through photographs, and I'm trying to assess things like that. The good thing is that works can finally start being shipped to to Los Angeles, so even though the process is much more slow than I wished, we have the opportunity to inspect the works in person once they get here, and then we can actually make informed decisions. It's something we try not to do because it's a lot of movement for the objects, but it's it's the only way we have to to conduct that kind of operation at the moment. What about the funder side of it? Is there concern, a lack of concern, about how funding will look like for your field, you know, over the next half decade or so, given not just the pause of the pandemic, but its impacts, financial impacts? I think funding in general for the arts has been has changed dramatically. The field of Spanish colonial art, if that's what you're referring to, is there are not a lot of funders. It's a very small pool. Some wonderful sponsors of exhibitions and books that have really, in my opinion, changed the field in an important way are Carl, Carl and Marilyn Toma. They have a foundation. They've been extraordinarily generous to students, to uh, writers, to exhibitions. They just I just saw an announcement yesterday that they are planning to start uh, funding research books on all the topics that they care about, including Spanish colonial art. So I wish there were more people like Carl and Marilyn that are completely invested in supporting our efforts in the field. Because, as you know, for for fields to, to take momentum and to really get established, you need both the art historians, the curators, the experts, but you also need the support of robust number of funders. Otherwise, the, the efforts can get really thwarted in the process. We talked briefly about publishing earlier, and you said that as far as you knew, publishing projects were still able to go forward? It's, I think that's a question that's all over the map, really. I've heard from museums in New York, for example, that they are curtailing their publications program. Some places have decided that books over X number of pages are not financially viable anymore. There's this moment of uncertainty right now in, around publication. So there's no one answer for, for how things are being conducted. I know... At LACMA, we, we have a wonderful publications department and a truly very creative head of the department who commissions the books and works with curators responding to the projects themselves. And as far as I understand, the the idea is not to make unilateral decisions or a kind of like one solution fits every project for now for financial reasons. But Finances do come into play, and without sort of healthy support for what we do, projects get impacted. So I hope that I hope that this pause is not too long, prolonged, and I hope that it doesn't have a long-lasting impact in those things. I think the jury's still out. As listeners may know, a lot of art books are published in northern Italy, a region known for having a lot of high-quality printers. And as I understand it, from, from talking with others, that some of that work has been able to go forward because the Italian government, this is not a joke, declared that industry to be, you know, of national interest, of national priority, which has allowed publishing or at least printing to to happen even during the pandemic. And, and so who knows if that continues that way or, or, or if it changes. Before we wrap up, is there any major impact that I haven't thought about or th- thought of to ask about because I mean there sure could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you you covered some of the salient challenges that we're all facing, which has to do with kind of the the limited access to archival and research materials, the inability to to acquire works in the ways we're used to doing, and research travel is is on pause right now so it, that's what we're facing at the moment and, and as i said i think the the uh, one of the positive aspects at least for me out of this whole thing is that we are really compelled to go inwards want it or not we're spending more time alone i know everybody has a different fam- family circumstance and different situations to contend with 
but we're not socializing and interacting with people the way we normally do. So there's a level of introspection which has to do both with the health situation that we're going through and also the, the social situation that is that is extraordinary at this time. So all of that combined is making for for a for a difficult but also highly creative period, I think. I think in the end this is going to yield a lot of new solutions to old problems. And I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just the eternal optimist. I think we're gonna come out of this much stronger. Yeah, I think a lot of exhibitions are going to be delayed and calendars reshuffled. Although I got to say, everybody I've talked to in the museum sector in the last, you know, six weeks or whatever has been, I mean, it sounds like everybody's working really hard to make it work. I I have heard nobody at Museum X complaining about Museum Y, even when I know they don't like each other. Um, (laughs) Collegiality is, it seems to me, at an all-time high. Which is cool, which is which is which is fun. Super cool. And the other thing is that it's forcing us to reassess squander, right? I mean we we oftentimes don't use our resources to the best of our abilities. And I think this is really going to compel all of us as a collective to waste less. I think that's true. Alona Katsu, thank you. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can WEX from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to WEXArts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, artist Lava Thomas, who joins me to discuss her experience with the San Francisco Arts Commission and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors regarding her proposed monument to Maya Angelou for the entrance to the San Francisco Public Library on Civic Center Plaza. Thomas had been the Art Commission's choice for the Angelou Monument until a member of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors and apparently a legislative aide objected, demanding a straightforward bronze statue of the poet. Thomas's work is included in the Outwin 2019 American Portraiture Today at the National Portrait Gallery, and her 2016 installation Requiem for Charleston is on view at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington. At least it will be when the museum reopens. In the last year or so, Thomas has been included in group shows at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, the DeRosa Center for Contemporary Art in Napa, and the California African American Museum in Los Angeles. Lava Thomas, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Maya Angelou. When the San Francisco Arts Commission put out a request for proposals for a public monument to Maya Angelou, Leaving aside the specific form of that monument for a second, we'll we'll be coming back to it. Why was that an RFP that motivated you to respond, to submit a proposal? Oh, Maya Angelou has been a shero of mine since I first read um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings in middle school. So um, when I discovered that there was a competition to create a sculpture to honor her, I, I was super excited. And that she's a San Franciscan, or at least was at at one point, couldn't have hurt. (laughs) 
Yes, she lived in San Francisco as a teenager. So after the initial application process, you were a leading candidate to receive the commission. And then when kind of soup came to nuts, the city specifically turned down your proposal because it was not a, a bronze guy on a horse style monument. It was not a 13th through 19th century style bronze monument uh, of, of the sort that, that litter American cities. Just for the sake of a bit of background, if we go back to the original legislation, um, the San Francisco Arts Commission had encouraged the City Board of Supervisors to modify its legislation specifically to depart from that kind of monument. And your proposal, a, re- a rendering of which we'll have on manpodcast.com, complied. What about the city's evident insistence on an 800-year-old European-style form to honor um, a contemporary Black American poet confounded you? One, that form is completely inappropriate to uh, represent a Black woman who was a celebrated writer, a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Honor, Um, She was also an activist who spoke out against injustice at every turn, a European model of statuary that's steeped in colonial violence is completely inappropriate. So I was surprised and really actually angry because the legislator, uh, uh, Supervisor Stephanie, who insisted upon this form, insisted on it after the fact. She completely changed the criteria and then called for a traditional statue and ordered the project be shut down, completely dismissing my work. And and the other artist who created work that didn't conform to that European classical convention. Yeah, the supervisor's name is Catherine Stephanie. Yes. What is is strange is she insisted that the piece include a female figure in her terms um, that could be recognized from afar. Could you describe um, your monument a bit and its relationship to the female figure, to, to, to representation? My monument is in the form of a nine-foot tall book, and it has a portrait of Dr. Maya Angelou on its cover. The back of the book has a quote by Maya Angelou that essentially speaks to her philosophy that all of us are equal as humans. In the way that I understood uh, the design criteria, it didn't call for a full-figure a uh, statue of Maya Angelou. That is a not, that's not what I understood the design brief to be. There wasn't anything that I read that said that it needed to be a female form that could be recognized from a distance. Now, my portrait on a nine-foot-tall book is certainly recognized from a distance. The back of the book, however, has a quotation by Dr. Angelo. And I chose the form of a book, not just because of its relationship to the library. Um, I chose that rectangular form because I really wanted my work to be grounded in Black aesthetics. I based it on the Benin bronze plaques of West Africa. I based it on Elizabeth Catlett's rectangular monument to Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man that Stands in Harlem. I was never told, it wasn't written, that this monument should be a three-dimensional, figurative uh, representation of Dr. Angelo. One of the really strange things to me about the city's response, as, as presented by Supervisor Stephanie, is the gross inappropriateness of a, a Karen who isn't an artist bossing around a black artist telling her how to be an artist. I mean, do you, do you have any understanding of why an elected official is telling an artist how to make art <laughs> or what art to make? I don't know. I was shocked. I was shocked. And the way that she made her demands was so uh, disrespectful during the visual arts committee meeting 
of this was October in October of 2019. And this is months after I was notified that my proposal essentially won first place. You have to remember that this was advertised as a national competition. The story ran in the press and art magazines around the country. And when I was notified that my proposal received top ranking, of course, I was certain that I won, that my sculpture, my uh, my design would be erected in front of the San Francisco library. But two weeks after I was told that my selection received top ranking, I received a call from the chair of the visual arts committee saying that the project sponsors uh, preferred a more figurative work and that my proposal would not be um, approved. So months later in October, during visual arts committee meeting, Supervisor Stephanie comes in. She says that she was clear about the legislation's intent and that she wanted Dr. Maya Angelou to be honored in the same way that men have historically been elevated in the city. Now, you have to remember that most of these monuments to men in the city won there of white men, and they are in this uh, Eurocentric classical tradition, which is completely inappropriate. She ordered the project to be closed and reopened, and that's what the Visual Arts Committee did. Yeah, one of the, one of the many odd things here is, is is that anybody could think of form essentially invented as, as a standalone form in the 13th century has to be the way you do something in the 21st century. I mean, that's just so odd. Um, one one of the other things that really struck me about this process is the city made it clear in ways both well, I guess mostly inappropriate that it was deeply <laughs> committed to representation and. A lot of your best-known work is deeply committed to representation. Um, Your mugshot portraits, Women of the Montgomery Bus Boycott series, which are graphite and Conte pencil portraits of the women who were indicted under the Alabama law that banned protesting, in this case a boycott, of course, is kind of an ultimate artistic wielding of representation to upturn a white authored narrative and white authored oppression. And you mentioned a moment ago that representation was part of your your interest in this project to begin with. Mm-hmm. So what about mm-hmm. representation works for you? What makes it a powerful address of, of monument memorialization, a presentation of history? Well, for me, um, and the majority of my work, and you just mentioned the mugshot portrait series, I based those portraits on actual mugshots. Representational work, portraiture in particular, it's accessible. It's accessible to almost everyone. That's one of the reasons why I choose to work this way versus uh, working in abstraction. I'm commemorating individuals. I use history as material. And in this particular case, with the Mugshot series, I wanted to commemorate the women who were indicted as leaders and organizers of the Montgomery Bus Boycott primarily because when we think of the civil rights movement, it's a very male-centered history. We immediately think of Dr. Martin Luther King as being the hero and leader when Martin Luther King's emergence as a public figure was a result of women organizing the Montgomery bus boycott. So I wanted to pay tribute to them. I wanted to expand that narrative and interject their stories into the public history. So the the only way for me to do that, especially since I'm basing um, these portraits on mugshots, is to do that through representation. Representation for me, portraiture in particular, has a way of connecting with human beings that other art forms I I don't want to say so strongly they may not, but as human beings, our earliest recognition is of our mothers, is of our mother's faith. So it's a very uh, strong, deep, primal recognition, and that is something that I want to tap into in my work. You also mentioned earlier that you are 
intent on resisting forms that are patriarchal or rooted in aesthetics that were used to further Anglo-Saxonism and other forms of white supremacy. And I wanted to talk about ways in which you've done that in your work. So take, for example, Resistance Reverb, Movements 1 and 2, or Requiem for Charleston, a 2016 work that recognizes the nine men and women who were killed by a white supremacist at an AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, and also others killed in other black churches. Um, both of those works feature tambourines as um, as a point of address, which is a bad academic phrase, but you know what I mean. <laughs> that, so that's a material or object or whatever you want to call it, because you've, you've made the tambourines, for example. Why why have you chosen to make tambourines central to, to work such as those? In the case of Requiem for Charleston, uh, well, let me just back up a little bit. Um, the t- I've always wanted to use the tambourine in, in my work. Um, I grew up in the Black church and have fond memories of playing the tambourine. My grandmother was a church pianist and choir director, so gospel music was a big part of my family. And I've always wanted to use some artifact from my childhood, from my own family history. And I first began using the tambourine during a solo exhibition at the Museum of the African Diaspora in 2013. When the Charleston massacre occurred in 2015, I was actually working on another exhibition of portraits, large-scale portraits of my Southern ancestors that also included a tambourine installation. Now, the AME Church doesn't use tambourines typically in their service, but the tambourine also is also an instrument that's rooted in different cultures. Not It's, it's usually associated with gospel music, but uh, Egyptian culture, uh, Jewish culture, you can find an iteration of the tambourine in Spain. Um, it's something that really speaks to our common humanity. It doesn't require special training to play it. And it's, again, one of the first instruments that children that children receive as gifts. So this idea of being something, a material being accessible in the same way that I used uh, graphite with the mugshot portraits is important to me. I'm interested in materials that allow for a wide, uh, a wide range of accessibility. So going back to Requiem for Charleston, um, even though that instrument isn't typically used in AME church services, the Sunday after the shooting, the community came out in droves in the streets, crowds, playing bells and playing tambourines. So that instrument for me emerged as, a, as an object of healing and as an object of unity. So that's one of the reasons why I chose to use it in that memorial. That's a great example of how you think through what forms are culturally appropriate and relevant to address a subject or or a monument and, and a memorial. Have you, and, and, and that seems very clear t- to me, and, and honestly, when I've seen uh, Requiem for Charleston, which is at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, it's very clear and jumps off the wall. You don't have to walk up and read a four-paragraph text to to understand that. Have you ever encountered something such as the experience you're having with San Francisco where a, a, no. a client... <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so clear as to be puzzling, I've I guess is never, what I'm I've never experienced this level of disrespect, dismissiveness, and disregard in my professional life, ever. And it's stunning to me. It's extremely hurtful, especially when um, this is the first monument slated uh, to a Black person and a woman in San Francisco with the intention of increasing the representation of women in San Francisco's public art holdings. So this is an attempt by the city to um, 
address the dearth of monuments of women because there are currently 87 or 88 uh, monuments to um, historical figures in San Francisco, only two of which are non-fictional women. So an attempt to um, correct that redress in the spirit of both uh, racial and gender equity and then to dismiss the vision of a Black woman artist and the vision of the selection panelists, which was comprised of a critical mass of Black women artists and arts professionals, to completely reject our vision, and and I will call us experts in the field, um, in favor of a politician with no art training who represents the most segregated um, district in the city, to me, is just appalling. I really don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, And they have, the city has opened a new RFQ, and I don't know where they are currently in the process, especially because COVID has um, shut down a lot of those processes, but they've, they are intent upon building this monument on the backs of black women who have been misled, who have been dismissed, who have been disrespected. And as far as I can tell, used as political pawns. It's completely inappropriate to do this in the name of honoring a woman who stood for justice. It's appalling and outrageous. One imagines they're going to have a heck of a time attracting other artists of significance to their um, to their monument program um, in the future. Lava Thomas, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.